My name is Daniel Pierce Higgins. I'm a circuit judge based in Worcester. With me is Danny Cushley, who is the policy director of Transform, a well-known drugs charity. We're here to talk about a conference entitled Drugs and Harm, a new agenda for a new government, which will take place at Cumberland Lodge on the 27th to 29th of January 2010. The purpose of the conference is to provide a meeting place and forum for an open discussion about the extent of illegal drug use, the harm that drug use causes, and how this is to be minimised. Bearing in mind the extent of this use and harm, it may be a matter to which a new government will wish to give some priority. It's also an area where views are changing, because the prohibition approach appeared to be having limited success. While substantial drug dealers are still treated harshly, users and small dealers who deal just to fund their own habit are more often treated as victims in need of treatment rather than criminals. The organisers at Cumberland Lodge have no preconceived views, nor do I. As a judge in the Crown Court, I deal with numerous drugs and drug-related cases. I see that the law is applied, and I sentence offenders in accordance with established guidelines. There will be a range of differing views expressed at the conference. Danny has agreed to speak at the conference, and at its end I hope I will be able to summarise the views expressed and any consensus reached. Amongst other speakers who have agreed to appear are Professor David Nutt, well-known government advisor on drug matters. He is critical of the current classification of drugs, which in his view does not accord with an evidence-based harm assessment. Ian Nuckensmith, MP, a leading Conservative and Chairman of the Centre for Social Justice, will also speak, as will Roger Howard, Chief Executive of the UK Drugs Policy Commission. There are many other speakers as well. Transform, as is well known, is committed to a radical change in the drugs law. They set out their positions in three publications, the latest of which is After the War on Drugs, Blueprint for Regulation, which was released on the 12th of November 2009. This most recent document sets out in great detail an alternative system to regulate the supply and use of currently illegal drugs. I'll let Danny summarise the, the Transform position now. Danny. So Transform is what we would call a non-radical organisation. We're calling for a normative approach to drug use, drug supply and drugs production. One that deals with drug use, as we do many other adult risk-taking behaviours, by applying a regulatory approach. So for us, the prohibition, both domestic and global, is the radical approach. It is extraordinary. It's almost unique in social policy making and provides a, a blanket, one-size-fits-all policy for the entire world. So what we're suggesting is that we need to give nation-states the opportunity and the wherewithal to implement policies that meet cultural, economic and political needs. And that would be to include, as well as prohibition, fundamentally uh, prescribing from doctors, dispensing from pharmacies and retailing from licensed retailers. And again, that is the normative way we deal with demand-led commodity trade. We're suggesting that these prin the principles that we use are not criminal justice ones predominantly, although we still think the criminal justice system will have a, and enforcement will have a place to play in a post-prohibition regime. Fundamentally, that would be a public health approach, a human development approach, a human security approach, uh, and one that is based on, on normative economic processes that recognise that to the extent that people want to buy these things, somebody will want to sell them and somebody will want to produce them. And we know that the current policy gifts the market to unregulated dealers and that a regulated market affords government control. End of story. Now, we know that the prohibition approach has been in force in full for the last 50 years or so and took about 50 years before that to come into force. It's now universal, backed by UN resolutions, conventions, etc. Why is it so well entrenched? The reason why international prohibition is so entrenched is because of the, the major predicate that it was that it was formed upon, and that is a threat 
It's perceiving drugs as a threat. So we would describe prohibition as a threat-based approach. What you have once you identify a threat-based approach is a series of agencies who become involved, predominantly quasi-military, enforcement, intelligence agencies, who then hold that policy over and above normative policy-making processes like public health and normal economic and social principles. So what you then have is a body of, of, of policy-making that is removed from the normative, which is undemocratic and becomes very self-referential. The problem also with a global prohibition regime is that it actually creates huge collateral damage and creates a real threat. So now on top of the existential threat, a kind of constructed threat at the beginning, you then have a real threat. It looks as if the identification of drugs as a threat is the threat, but it isn't. The threat actually arises from gifting the trade to organised criminals and unregulated dealers. So most international and national organisations are out of step, but you're in step because they've got the wrong idea about prohibition. Well, I think that we've got the most sophisticated view because that's all we've been doing th and thinking about but for the last 12 years. But any position authority tends to agree with you? Well, they don't agree with us because of the, of, of the, the, the way that prohibition is set up. And, and most political support for prohibition is set up in such a way that they can't even critique it themselves. We know, and anyone that you speak to who knows politicians outside of the broadcast arena will know that what they tell you on the record is very different from what they tell you off the record. And, and we've been told by people again and again and again who work in various professional and policy-making settings that their political masters will tell them that what we're doing at the moment makes everything worse. And then they lie about so it why, as soon as the record button... Why won't they go on the record this then? Well, public? politicians are s set up to support the orthodoxy and the status quo. It's very difficult for politicians to maintain credibility when they step outside of the thinking that exists within that box. But if you look at it the other way round, for instance, when Anne Widdicombe called for on-the-spot fines for people in possession of cannabis, eight of her cabinet colleagues then announced that, that they had smoked dope in the past and that one of them actually enjoyed it. It's, it's very difficult to, to maintain a constant view when people's personal lives are at such dissonance with their political views and when the, the orthodoxy within drug policy is, in, in terms of the propaganda, is virtually hermetically sealed in such a way that if you step outside that box, you look very odd. And if you look at the trouble that David Nutt got into when he stepped beyond the orthodoxy, as a scientist, he was shot down in flames for basically telling an inconvenient truth. And that becomes very, very difficult for any politician who might want to follow suit, who sees what happens to him, because he got sacked for doing it. But if there are enough politicians, and you say there are, who have these sorts of views, do they not talk to each other? Well, the thing is, interestingly, I think we're in, we're in a time of flux at the moment. In the drug policy reform movement, I think there are a lot of people who are recognising that the tide has turned, partly the Obama effect, partly the economic crisis, partly the way that prohibition's collateral damage is becoming more and more evident to the wider general public and more difficult to sustain a drug war orthodoxy is that we're moving towards a time where politicians will be able to stand up and say these things. Interestingly, President Obama described the war on drugs as an utter failure in 2004 and also admitted to using cocaine and cannabis in his autobiography. David Cameron was ex or at least suspended from Eton for smoking cannabis has been very equivocal about his use of cocaine and ecstasy and is also on the record from 2002 as a backbench member of the Home Affairs Select Committee Drugs Inquiry 
for calling on the UK government to initiate a debate on alternatives to prohibition, including regulation and control, at the UN. Now, what you have here is, is ambivalence, and that's what you'd expect to see before a significant political change. On a different tack, there are those like Cathy Gingell who would say the current policy doesn't work, and what we need is more money spent on trying to restrict the supply of drugs and more money better spent on treatment rather than maintaining addicts on methadone, real treatment to get them abstaining from all drugs. What, what, would that not work? What's the answer to that? Well, the fact is that the, the, it, it quest, it, it, the question is what are you trying to solve by a particular policy intervention? Now, the initial policy intervention of global and domestic prohibition is to rid the world of drugs and stop people using them. Now, given that that obviously hasn't worked, and that we've seen massive increases in use, supply and production of the drugs that we most want to eradicate and inhibit, that clearly hasn't worked. But what it has done is caused enormous collateral damage. Now, the reason why organisations like the Centre for Policy Studies are looking at increasing treatment so hugely for people with problematic heroin and crack use is because they want to see the reductions in significantly the property crime that is associated with the use of those drugs. They don't obsess about the need to get alcoholics or tobacco addicts into treatment. And the reason is because the government and a lot of other people don't really care if those people die and get sick. The real problem is the impact on the criminal justice system, which people get much more exercised about. So despite the fact that we have 8.5 million problematic smokers and 2 to 4 million chronic drinkers, that's not where the action is as far as these people are concerned. It's in this tiny little cohort of 350,000 problematic heroin and crack users who they're desperate to get into treatment. Now, what you need to do is take a step back and say, well, why are we obsessing about this group? The reason we're obsessing about this group is that they're involved in a very dirty and dangerous business. That means they're involved in the criminal justice system um, far uh, more than they would be if they were using regulated legal drugs. And that they're involved in a trade that leaves all the way back through West Africa in the cocaine route and back to Colombia and then in various different opium trading routes that go back to Afghanistan that completely de destabilise entire nation states. But that's not because these people are involved in problematic drug use. That's because of prohibition. So if you want to solve those problems, you have to take away the prohibition. That's where we will need to go if we want to solve the kind of societal problems that Ian Duncan Smith and Cathy talk about in their Broken Britain publications. Now, in order to deal with those things, you have to remove what is effectively a policy that scapegoats people who use, that demonises the drugs themselves, and turns fragile states into narco states. Well, thank you, Danny, for very clearly expressing your views. Uh, Danny Kushlik is one of the speakers who will be at this conference uh, in January at Cumberland Lodge. We hope very much that you too will be there. <laughs>